This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're beginning our first ever listener-suggested series. A big thanks to Janelle for the suggestion. Many of us meet our closest friends when we are young. If you still have friends you met in high school, they're probably the ones who know you the best and who've been with you through thick and thin. These are the friends you trust the most. But what if someone you thought was a good friend turned on you? And not just by letting you down or even betraying you, but also by becoming dangerous or even lethal. In this series, I will detail cases where friends turn upon friends and become deadly. This is Chapter 1 of With Friends Like These. This is the case of Kirsten Costas. Arinda, California is a town located in Northern California, about an hour northeast from San Francisco. It's not far from the UC Berkeley campus and near the Oakland Hills. The population has long hovered around 18,000 residents and is considered a bedroom community. Many people who live in Arinda commute to work in Oakland, San Francisco, or nearby Walnut Creek. Orinda and other towns surrounding it, like Lafayette and Moraga, are enclaves of upper-middle-class and downright wealthy citizens. There's a feel in these towns that make you think exclusive, although it still has a small-town feel. Chain restaurants and fast-food places are strictly forbidden. Residents find them tacky, and they don't go with the overall look of the quaint town. Recently, Arinda was ranked the second most friendly town in America by Forbes. Arinda's median household income as of the 2000 census was $187,000. This is high, even for California, where homes are pricey and tax rates are high. In June 1984, Kirsten Costas was a 16-year-old Maramonte High School student who was enjoying the summer between her sophomore and junior years. When Art and Barrett Costas began their family they decided to move from Oakland to Arinda, seeking a smaller, safe community to raise their children. Art became an executive with the 3M Corporation, while Barrett stayed home to raise Kirsten, and then her younger brother Peter as well. They had many friends in the community and were involved in their children's sports and other civic activities. By the time Kirsten was in junior high school, she was popular and outgoing. She wasn't the school beauty queen, but she was a pretty petite brunette with dark eyes and curly hair. Her classmates were drawn to her energy. She was always involved in sports and other activities. When she entered high school at Miramonte, she was viewed as one of the leaders of the in-crowd. Most of you know what that means in high school. These are the students that are in the most popular clubs on campus, are part of the student council, the star athletes, the best students, sometimes, and are voted prom king and queen and elected to the homecoming court. Not my crowd, and maybe not yours, but you know them when you see them. Kirsten fit in easily with this group. At least one classmate, Nancy Kane, who figures in later on in this story, described Kirsten as stuck up. She was a snob, Nancy would say many years later, in an interview. She was not friendly. Nancy explains further that she was not accepted by the in-crowd. While Kirsten and her friends wore the popular teen trends in clothing of the mid-1980s, think neon colors and headbands. I know, I know, but it was in then. 
Nancy wanted to display her individuality and dressed in new wave or punk style clothing. Her hair was dyed wild colors and her clothes were mostly black. This set her apart from the other kids and it wasn't long before she was shunned or even made fun of by other students. It sucks that in many times and places you can't display your individuality without getting ignored, shunned, or even bullied. But we're talking about high school. Many kids are afraid to be different from their classmates. The pressure to conform can be daunting for young people. They don't want to stand out as an uncool weirdo. Yes, it sucks, but it's high school. It mostly sucks. But there was another girl who, unlike Nancy, was very invested in becoming accepted into the in-crowd. Bernadette Prady was the youngest of six children being raised in a devout Catholic family. Her father, Raymond, was a retired engineer with the city of San Francisco. Bernadette's family didn't have as much money as some of her other classmates, but they were not poor by any stretch. Bernadette was described by friends and neighbors as a nice, soft-spoken girl. She was a pretty girl with a nice smile and long blonde hair. In one account I came across, she is described as a plain Jane, but she wasn't that at all. She was an attractive girl. Bernadette, however, always felt she could not measure up to the other kids in her school. She complained about many things. Her parents were old. She was embarrassed that her house wasn't as nice as some of her classmates. She told friends she wished she lived in a modern, expensive-looking house with Laura Ashley wallpaper and Vogue furniture. Bernadette had friends and was accepted in the popular crowd, but she wasn't in the most popular group, the group that Kirsten was a part of, and this is what she wanted most. Friends of Bernadette's would say that she was obsessed with being liked, and especially by Kirsten and her group of friends. Bernadette was one of those kids who got their self-worth by fitting in with those she considered to be the most popular and successful. She would change to be whoever she thought others would like the most. One friend said she'd even seen Bernadette do drugs, something that was unlike her, to fit in. It seems she understood she had a problem, just not what to do about it. I have an inferiority complex, she told a friend. She thought she was ugly, that no boys liked her, and that her hair and clothes were so blah. The more she was around Kirsten, the more she wanted to be like her. In Bernadette's eyes, being accepted by Kirsten would mean she'd made it. She set out to be included in the clubs and activities Kirsten and the other popular girls were part of. In the spring of their sophomore year, both Kirsten and Bernadette were accepted into the Bobo Lynx Club, or the Bobbies. This was a sorority-like club where girls had to be nominated to and then be deemed worthy enough to be initiated into the group. Members spent time together socializing and on volunteer projects and other activities. Only about 30 girls in the entire school were selected to be part of the Bobby's organization. As their sophomore year was coming to a close, it was time for tryouts for several activities in anticipation of the fall and their junior year. Juniors and seniors in American high schools are considered upperclassmen, and this is the time for students to shine during their high school years. The most competitive and coveted position for girls at Miramonte High School was a spot on the cheerleading squad. Both Kirsten and Bernadette separately spent many hours practicing their cheers for the upcoming tryouts. Cheerleading at Miramonte High School was taken very seriously. Those who wanted to be considered had to write an essay explaining what they would bring to the squad and to their school. Parents were required to pay $500, this in 1984, 
for their child's cheerleading uniform, as well as for cheerleading camp, which was a requirement. Twenty judges sat grading hopeful cheerleaders during the tryouts. The names of the girls who made the squad were announced at a formal ceremony. Sounds like a nerve-wracking experience. Kirsten was accepted into the 1984-85 Miramonte cheerleading squad. Bernadette was not. She was devastated. Not long afterwards, she was also informed that she was not selected to be on the yearbook committee. Now Bernadette was inconsolable. Everything was crashing down around her teenaged ears. She only had one card left. If she could make Kirsten like her and become her friend, then everything would work out, she thought. While Bernadette wanted Kirsten as a friend, she also felt intimidated by her. Like she told her friend, she had an inferiority complex. She was hypersensitive to anything she saw as rejection, and if it came from Kirsten, it was received even worse. Bernadette had attended a ski trip with Kirsten and some of the other girls earlier in the year. Bernadette's family didn't have as much money like some of the other girls, and top-of-the-line ski equipment was a bit out of reach financially. Bernadette saved money by babysitting and other small jobs to purchase some used skis and ski boots. During the ski trip, Bernadette said Kirsten made a comment about her old equipment. Bernadette became embarrassed and angry at Kirsten for the remark made in front of everyone. Perhaps Bernadette read more into an innocuous comment by Kirsten. Or maybe she could be a bit snobby, as Nancy had described. In either case, the comment stuck with Bernadette. She would later say, Kirsten just said stuff that made me feel bad. It seemed like everybody else was thinking that, Bernadette would say about the skis. But she was the only one who would ever come out and say it. School had ended for the year, but Bernadette Prati was still trying to figure out how to get closer to Kirsten Costas. On June 22, 1984, Kirsten was away from home at cheerleading camp on the campus of St. Mary's College in nearby Moraga. Bernadette called Kirsten's home and spoke with her mother, Barrett. Kirsten was expected to return the next day. Without identifying herself, she told Mrs. Costas that Kirsten was invited to a secret Bobo Links initiation dinner the following night. Kirsten was not to talk to anyone about the invitation, as it was a secret, and only a select few were invited. The next day, Kirsten's mother told her about the dinner, and she made plans to attend. That night, on June 23rd, Kirsten's mother, father, and younger brother Peter left to attend a potluck for Peter's baseball team. Kirsten waited alone at home for her ride to show up and take her to the secret location. Meanwhile, Bernadette asked her father to drive her to a nearby babysitting job. When they pulled up to the house, Bernadette asked him if he would leave the car, a mustard-yellow Ford Pinto, in front of the house for her to drive home later. She'd feel safer, she said. He agreed and walked the couple of blocks back home. As soon as he'd left, Bernadette drove off in the Pinto to the Costas house, arriving around 8.30 p.m. She honked the horn and Kirsten came out. She was not thrilled to see who had come to pick her up, saying, Oh, it's you, according to Bernadette's later statement. She got in the car. When she drove off with Kirsten, Bernadette told her that there actually was no secret dinner. It was just an excuse to get Kirsten out of the house. They were actually going to an unsupervised party, she told her. In Bernadette's account, Kirsten was not happy to see her, 
but when she told her they were going to a party, Kirsten asked her to pull over in the church parking lot so they could smoke pot. Bernadette said she told her she didn't want to smoke. Then she said, We just talked, you know, argued. Not argued, really, but she didn't think it was any big deal, and I just didn't want to. She thought I was being weird. Okay, let's stop and unpack this for a second. We only have Bernadette's version of this, which I'll explain in a minute, but most who heard her story would have a hard time believing it. First of all, Kirsten's family and friends said she wasn't even a casual drug user. But even if she smoked weed now and again, would she want to stop with Bernadette, who she wasn't really friends with, to spend more time alone with her? And if she believed Bernadette that they were headed to a party where parents would not be present, wouldn't she wait to smoke once she got to the party? Doesn't make a lot of sense to most people. What seems to be a more likely scenario is that Bernadette pulled over in the parking lot to talk to Kirsten, who was not thrilled to be trapped in the car with the girl. Maybe Bernadette offered her marijuana, maybe not. Maybe that was just a way later to point a finger at Kirsten to show she was just not as perfect as everyone believed. In any case, we know what happened next. A little over an hour after Bernadette picked her up, Kirsten rang the bell at a house on Orchard Road. Orchard Road directly faces a Methodist church parking lot. Kirsten left the car and stormed off to find a way home. The home belonged to Alexander and Mary Jane Arnold, friends of Kirsten's parents. Mr. Arnold answered the door. Kirsten appeared tense, he said, but not terrified. My friend got weird on me, Kirsten told him, and asked him if she could use his phone to call her parents to pick her up. The Arnold saw another girl standing on the path near their home, as if she had followed Kirsten partway to the house. When Kirsten's parents didn't answer the phone, they were still out at the Little League dinner, Mr. Arnold offered to drive her home. Arnold noticed a yellow-colored pinto following them, but Kirsten seemed unconcerned. When they reached Kirsten's block, her parents' car was still gone, so she decided to go and wait for them at a neighbor's house. Mr. Arnold asked her if she would be all right, and she said she would. Kirsten left the car and began walking towards the neighbor's front door. Bernadette, meanwhile, had parked her car and gotten out. Arnold saw a person jump out from behind a tall hedge and run toward Kirsten, whose back was turned to her. Her arm was raised over her head and came down over Kirsten, who was standing on the neighbor's porch. Kirsten fell and then sprang up again. She ran away from her attacker to another house across the street for help. Arnold saw Kirsten being attacked, but thought it was merely a fight. He then saw the other person jump back in the yellow car and drive off. Automatically reacting, he gave chase in his own car, but after about a quarter mile, he stopped and realized he should return to make sure Kirsten was okay. But Kirsten was not okay. She had been stabbed five times with a foot-long butcher knife. She had two stab wounds to her back and two in her chest, a 15-inch wound had penetrated her left arm, chest, and left lung. There was also a defensive wound from the knife on her right arm. The wounds in her back punctured her right lung, passed through her diaphragm, and lacerated her liver. Somehow, she was still able to scream for help, which roused Arthur Hillman. He opened his front door to see the small girl bleeding profusely. Help me, help me, I've been stabbed, Kirsten was able to plead before collapsing. An ambulance was quickly called. Kirsten's family arrived just as their daughter was being loaded into the ambulance. They followed it to a nearby hospital, 
but Kirsten had been mortally wounded. She died at 11.02 p.m. Witnesses, including Alexander Arnold, described a round-faced blonde wearing a yellow shirt and faded red sweatpants driving off in the mustard-colored pinto. But even with the description and Kirsten's own words to Alexander Arnold about her friend going weird on her, Bernadette was not suspected. It seems that in that insulated community, nobody could wrap their brain around the fact that perhaps one of their own had committed such an atrocious act. All of Kirsten's friends, including all the girls in the Bobolinks, were quickly eliminated as suspects. As for Bernadette, after stabbing Kirsten, she returned home, hid the knife, and took a walk with her mother in the cool evening air to walk their dog. Her demeanor did not suggest that anything out of the ordinary had happened. The following day, she washed Kirsten's blood off the knife and returned it to her kitchen. Later, she would throw her blood-spattered clothes in a dumpster at the local swim club. Police were only going on two leads, the female that was described by witnesses and the light-colored pinto. Most thought the case would be solved within hours. Police conducted more than 300 interviews, including four with Bernadette herself, and tracked down over 1,000 leads. They also examined over 754 pintos, including Raymond Prodi's. Yet they remained stumped as to who the killer was. The community took up a collection to offer reward for the arrest of Kirsten's killer. It grew to more than $50,000. Flyers with the details of the crime and Kirsten's picture were posted all over town. Worried parents wouldn't allow their daughters out alone. Teen girls were seen in groups of at least two or three in Arinda, a town that was once considered so safe. Still, there were no leads. To be fair, Bernadette was identified by investigators as a possible suspect. However, whenever they spoke to anyone who knew her, they all said she was incapable of such violence. Five days after her murder, Kirsten's family and friends gathered for her funeral. Police detectives were also in attendance to see if anyone stood out from the crowd. Apparently, Bernadette, who was present, did not. Investigators continued to follow leads, but there was no progress on the case over the rest of the summer. Bernadette continued as normal and even spent time taking religious studies classes that summer in preparation for her confirmation an important religious milestone for young Catholics. When school began in the fall, there was a buzz around the campus. While there was no official suspect named, some Miramonte High School students were pointing to one person they believed could have committed the crime. Nancy Kane, the girl that didn't fit in because she dressed differently from the other kids, was increasingly gossiped about. When she returned to school that fall, tongues wagged and fingers pointed her way. Nancy had once been like any other Arinda teen. She'd played soccer and had many friends in junior high. Then in high school, she turned down an invitation to join the Bobbies and began dressing in a punk style. It set her apart from other kids, and Nancy said that for whatever reason, her former friends resented it. The popular kids stopped speaking to her. Her classmates were also aware that Nancy didn't like Kirsten. Nancy admits this, saying that she thought Kirsten was a mean girl who wasn't very nice to those who weren't popular or didn't run in her social circle. Kirsten and Nancy had had words between them in the past. They never had a fight, 
but it was clear to everyone that there was no love lost between the two girls. Nancy was already on the detective's radar. Three days after Kirsten's death, they had interviewed her. Detectives had already heard the gossip about her feelings towards Kirsten and the accusations by the other students. However, Nancy had an alibi. She had been at her boyfriend's house that evening, and his mother had also been present. They asked her to take a lie detector test, but Nancy's mother refused to allow it. Even though Nancy had been cleared by detectives, students at the school still accused her of being Kirsten's murderer. She was even accused of being part of a satanic cult. Nancy was ostracized by her classmates. When it became too much, she transferred to another school. The girls who made up the Bobbies wanted to disband the organization. It just didn't feel right to keep it going without Kirsten. It was Bernadette who encouraged them all to continue the club. In Kirsten's memory, of course. That's what she would have wanted, Bernadette said. They agreed. Bernadette was even voted in as secretary. Kirsten's parents were frustrated by the lack of leads in the case and desperate to find out who had killed their daughter. They decided to hire a private detective. P.I. Elliot Friedman began by rechecking the alibis of the most likely suspects, including Bernadette. Bernadette's alibi had been that she was babysitting that night for the Weems family. But when Mrs. Weems was contacted by Friedman, she told him that she had not asked Bernadette to babysit for over a year at that point. The detectives in the sheriff's department hadn't bothered to check out Bernadette's alibi because she had agreed to take a lie detector test. Bernadette, however, was seriously considered as a suspect by the department. With so many leads and no solid evidence, the sheriff's department reached out to the FBI's behavioral science unit to come up with the profile of the most likely suspect. FBI profilers interpret forensic evidence, such as crime scene photos, autopsy records, and victimology, to reconstruct offender behavior patterns. From this, they work to deduce a perpetrator's characteristics, demographics, emotions, and behaviors. They then take that profile and match it to their list of possible suspects. It fit only one person, Bernadette Prodi. At that time, she was asked to take a polygraph test, which she agreed to. Some of her answers were deemed inconclusive, while the examiner decided she was telling the truth about others. She was then cleared as a suspect. When Friedman told detectives that Bernadette lied about her alibi, they countered that she had passed the polygraph. It's wrong, Friedman insisted. The polygraph results were then reread, this time by the FBI. They concluded that Bernadette had been lying. On December 11th, she was called in for another police interview. This time it was conducted by FBI agent Ron Hilly. He took her back through the night of Kirsten's murder and her alibi. At first, she stuck to her story. Agent Hilly then took her through the FBI profile of the subject they were looking for, including the belief that the killer would have little remorse for her crime and all the other factors that would have been at play, jealousy, resentment, and fear of rejection. Upon hearing the profile, Bernadette commented, That sounds like me. She then asked the agent if he'd ever considered that a 16-year-old might be more afraid of negative publicity than going to prison. Bernadette did not confess, but she told the agent she wanted to go home and think about it. Without any evidence or a confession, he had no choice but to let her go. Bernadette had been writing in her journal things that were weighing heavily on her mind for some time. She wrote, I have caused a lot of hurt and pain to a lot of people. 
I don't want to hurt people anymore. I want to go to heaven when I die. I regret what I did. I cannot bring Kirsten back or change time. If I kill myself, I will hurt people even more, my family. She considered suicide, but as a Catholic, she believed it was a sin. I would go to hell if I killed myself, she wrote. The night after speaking with the FBI agent, she told her mother Elaine that she wanted to talk to her. Elaine said she was too tired that night and they could speak the next day. Before she went to bed, Bernadette wrote a letter that she left for her mother before leaving for school the next morning. Dear Mom and Dad, it read, I have been trying to tell you this all day, but I love you so much it's too hard, so I'm taking the easy way out. The FBI man thinks I did it, and he is right. I've been able to live with it, but I can't ignore it. It's too much for me, and I can't be that deceiving. Please still love me. I can't live unless you love me. I've ruined my life and yours, and I don't know what to do, and I'm ashamed and scared. Bernadette. P.S. Please don't say how could you or why, because I don't understand this, and I don't know why. Elaine picked up her daughter at school and then called her husband to come home. They drove her to the sheriff's department. There, Bernadette gave a 90-minute taped interview with detectives. The first thing Bernadette did was ask a question. What are you going to tell the press, she asked them. Then, do I go to Juvenile Hall or do I go back to Miramonte? She was more fearful of returning to school and being judged by her classmates than jail. I can't live if it is known. I'd rather die, she said. She then made the following confession. She had called Kirsten's house to invite her to the dinner, but it was just a way to get to hang out with Kirsten to take her to a party and try and become her friend. However, it would be pointed out later on that Bernadette wasn't dressed to attend a party, wearing just an old t-shirt and sweats. She was asked about her relationship with Kirsten, and she said that Kirsten never really liked me. It hurt. She just said stuff that made me feel bad. She then described the incident about the skis, how Kirsten had made a comment about her crummy skis and boots. She just sort of put me down, she said. They questioned her about other things she might have been upset about, disappointments she'd had leading up to the murder. I have a lot of inferiority feelings, she told them, and I really have bad feelings about myself. I lost her cheerleader, and I didn't get the club I wanted, and I didn't get on the yearbook staff. The things that got me mad was it hurt, and I couldn't change things like money or looks or popularity. Bernadette would say that she drove to the church parking lot at the request of Kirsten, who wanted to smoke weed. She said they argued, but not fought, but only because Bernadette declined to smoke with her. Detectives then tried to get her to explain the transition from a mild argument about smoking marijuana to a deadly stabbing rampage. She talked in circles, saying she didn't know why, but she did make some statements about her motivation for the murder. We just talked, you know, not really argued. She thought I was just being weird. She put me down. I thought she was going to tell everybody at school that I was weird. I can't explain it. I don't understand it. It was like if I had been thinking straight, it would never have happened. I guess I was angry. I really don't know. She was telling me to go away. I just got angry and I did it. Afterwards, I was just so horrified and sick. But she would also say, I was really good at blocking it out of my mind, and I still am. That's why I can live through every day, because it doesn't seem real. 
She would also say that she only followed Kirsten and the Pinto to, quote, make sure she got home safe. But as she drove, she became frightened about how Kirsten might describe her and the events of that evening to the other girls at school. Bernadette's fear then turned into anger. She said she found the butcher knife in the car. Her sister would later say she thought she might have left it there. She was in the habit of cutting up vegetables for her meals in the car. Yeah, right. Nice try. Six months after Kirsten Costa's death, Bernadette Prodi was charged with the second-degree murder of her classmate. Because she was only 15 at the time of the murder, California law then required that she be tried in juvenile court. A juvenile court proceeding is held without a jury. The judge alone decides the fate of the accused. Raymond and Barrett Costas wanted their daughter's murderer tried on a first-degree murder charge. Barrett said that the murder was premeditated from the moment of the phone call. Bernadette had plenty of time to change her mind, she said. Bernadette's lawyers offered to have her plead guilty to second-degree murder five weeks before the start of the trial, but the district attorney rejected it, having decided to make a case for first-degree murder. However, because it was a juvenile case, whether she was convicted of first- or second-degree murder made no difference in the sentence. She would be placed in the custody of the California Youth Authority, which could release her at any time before, but would be required to free her when she turned 25. Kirsten's family wanted the judge to hear the details of their daughter's death and for the truth to come out, so they were opposed to the plea deal. They wanted the judge to know that Bernadette had lied about taking Kirsten to a party. There was no party. They believed she had planned to get her alone to kill her all along. They wanted it on record that she had planned the murder and then played innocent for six months, pretending to be grieving along with Kirsten's friends. Prosecutor John Oda told Judge Edward Merrill that Prodi, afraid of being rejected by her peers and embarrassed about being called weird, had acted with premeditation and wanton disregard for human life. She was determined to kill Costas if she did not agree to be her friend and get her into the in-crowd, he said. Prodi's confession was self-serving, and she never acted with remorse during the six months since the murder. She knew her arrest was imminent, he told the judge, so she finally came clean to try and save her own skin. The judge seemed irritated that the trial was held at all. He said it would have been preferable for the district attorney's office to have accepted the defendant's plea of second-degree murder and be done with it. He said the three-day trial smacked of entertainment. He rejected the prosecutor's assertions of premeditation. He was also sympathetic towards the defendant and her family. Holding the trial had just prolonged the agony of everyone, including the defendant and her family, he stated. Bernadette was surrounded by her parents and siblings during the trial. The judge was disturbed that so many spectators were fighting for seats in the courtroom. I'm really wondering what we accomplished here these last three days, the judge said. I'm just hoping this trial isn't here for some entertainment value. Bernadette's attorney was also sympathetic to the accused killer. Bernadette had said she feared nothing more than public humiliation, and that has happened, he said. There was really no purpose to have this trial. Perhaps it helped purge the melancholy surrounding this case. I'm not sure what went on for Bernadette is a good or healthy thing. It seems everyone had forgotten that there was a dead 16-year-old and a grieving family who needed to receive some sense that justice had been served.
Judge Merrill decided that prosecutors failed to prove first-degree murder beyond a reasonable doubt and found Bernadette Prodi guilty of second-degree murder. Two weeks later, she was sentenced to no less than one year and no more than nine in the jurisdiction of the California Youth Authority. If she served her entire sentence, she would be released at age 25. Neither Kirsten's family nor her classmates or community thought that the sentence fit the crime. However, at the time, it was all the law would allow for a juvenile offender. Some were angry that she hadn't been convicted of first-degree murder, but even if she had, she could not have been imprisoned beyond her 25th birthday. Now in California, this is not the case. Many juveniles charged with serious and violent crimes are now routinely tried as adults. Those that begin their sentences in the custody of the California Youth Authority are then transferred to adult prisons once they reach the age of majority to serve out the rest of their sentences, sometimes even life. Kirsten's father, Art Costas, said that many people missed the point that Kirsten's killer would have gotten off light either way, and she may not even serve the full nine years. She's not going to prison necessarily until she's 25, he explained. She could get out, say, in three years. To me, that's not right. Of course, some are ready to blame bad parenting, as we often see in cases where kids commit terrible crimes. Some commented that teenagers in Orinda may react more dramatically to slights because of the high expectations that are set for them by parents. Popularity is seen as one measurable proof of success in high school. For the students of Miramonte High School, some things changed forever. Many were left feeling that they couldn't trust anyone. Maybe they didn't even really know their own friends. Some felt guilty for having blamed Nancy Kane, an innocent person, and driving her out of school. She eventually returned, but the damage was done. What can you do, one student said. You can't make up for six months of hell. They also talked about the culture of competition and backstabbing within the school. People can get really nasty at this school, one junior said. Everyone says this school is so boring, so they start doing things for entertainment. They start being cruel. Everyone wants to be the best. It's so competitive. One woman, not from Orinda, but from another upscale neighborhood, voiced this opinion. It was a double tragedy. I think these well-groomed women who raise their children this way are guilty too because they bring them up from infancy with designer clothes. They breed it, the emphasis on popularity. It made me cry, and I felt ashamed of being a woman. I guess fathers get a pass. Way to victim blame as well. Yikes. Kirsten's father was right. Bernadette would not serve out all nine years of her sentence. On June 10, 1992, she was released in a two-to-one parole board decision. She was 23 years old and had served less than eight years in prison. By that time, she'd already been denied twice for parole. Art and Barrett Costas continued to vehemently oppose Prodi's release. She served her sentence at CYA's Ventura School. She earned her high school diploma with a 4.0 grade point average and had taken enough college courses to qualify for an associate in arts degree. Art Costas said he resented a justice system that placed Prodi in a facility where she could have a boyfriend and complete her high school education, things that were robbed from his daughter by Prodi's actions. He also worried that Prodi was still a danger to the public. Two of the parole board members recommended her early release, 
stating that she no longer presented an imminent threat to society. But one board member, Victor Weishart, disagreed. Prady, in his opinion, remained a danger to the public and in need of further treatment to address her inability to control her anger and impulses. He referred to an incident where she demonstrated anger and a lack of impulse control in a confrontation with her boyfriend at the Youth Authority School. I hate to think how she would have handled the incident had she been on parole and able to arm herself and stalk again another victim. She has a hidden trigger that anyone can pull just by not giving her what she thinks she should get in a relationship, he added. However, he was outvoted two to one and Prady was released. She left the state, but the parole board was not required to tell the public where she'd gone. She changed her name, so her whereabouts are unknown. Before Bernadette Prady was released, Kirsten's family had moved away from Orinda. They now live in Hawaii. Kirsten Marina Costas would have celebrated her 49th birthday in July of this year. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Thanks to all of you who've left ratings and reviews. This week, I want to highlight some international listeners. It's so amazing to get reviews, emails, and messages from listeners in other countries. Here are a few who have left reviews in the past few weeks. From Australia, BBB, The Bees Neves, Rewire My Brain, and Nick O6285. From Ireland, iPad Bonnie. From the UK, Dan Rose 54321, Rachel Elsa, Bybot3000, Julia Bolton, and Pod Fanatic. From Paraguay, Madeline. From Chile, Andres. From Brazil, Cayo. And from Canada, Playa Lady and Leafs Girl. Thanks everybody so much. If you heard your name shouted out, send an email to me at Esther at True Crime Podcast, and I'll send you an OUAC sticker pack. And continuing to highlight international fare, stay tuned at the end of the show where I share promos from three other true crime podcasts you might love. These shows feature crimes from Canada, New Zealand, and the UK. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another. Hi, this is Christy Lee, host of the Canadian True Crime Podcast. My podcast tells Canadian stories of cruel people who committed heinous acts and honours innocent victims who are no longer with us. I start with a deep dive into the story of Paul Bernardo and Carla Hamolka with information you probably haven't heard, and then I venture into some lesser-known Canadian crime stories. You can find me on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Canadian True Crime. I'm Jess, the host of the Kiwi Crimes podcast. Each week, I'll share a missing persons or murder case from New Zealand. I discuss cases that are well known, as well as cases that you might not have heard of. Some cases will be recent and ongoing, while others will be cold. Full-length episodes are released fortnightly, and minisodes are released on the in-between weeks. You can find Kiwi Crimes anywhere you get your podcasts. I hope you'll join me as I explore the cases that rocked New Zealand. Kakiteano. Slaughter is a true crime podcast covering obscure, uh. well, 
unknown, not very well-known cases from the UK and Ireland. We have a binge-worthy back catalogue with cases covering murderers to con artists, including villainous individuals such as the Grinder Killer, Jimmy Savile, everyone's favourite uncle, and the Scissor Sisters, who had no scissors. There weren't scissors involved. <laughs> so join us, Lucy and Emma, as we bring you some gripping tales, just the right amount of banter, not necessarily in this promo, and you might even learn something along the way. So just type in S apostrophe laughter into Apple Podcasts, Acast, or anywhere where you listen to podcasts, and you can find us. And if you don't like it, you've lost nothing. <laughs>